Welcome to Green Eggs in West Ham. I'm Chris S. and I'm joined by Chris W. This week, we talk about how the boys did against Arsenal, give an in-depth look at defensive midfielders in the West Ham system, and look forward to next weekend's game against the Wolves. This is Green Eggs in West Ham. Welcome to our first section of concise analysis regarding the Arsenal game. Today, we saw a disappointing result against Arsenal in a game that really should have been a tie. Once again, we were overruled by VAR uh, to decide the game. From the top, break down our performance today, Chris. Yeah, we came in this game really high off a win against Southampton and off another pretty good performance against Liverpool before that. We, we kept the same exact lineup as we did against Southampton, the 4-4-2. Every player started. Um, the only big change was Suchek was back from injury on the bench. And I thought for, for a while we looked, we looked pretty good. They had a lot of possession in the first half, but felt we had the better chances to kick it off. And we just – the difference between this and the Southampton game is we weren't clinical. I, I saw finishing today a big problem with us, and the keeper did have some good saves on their side. Uh, but still, you know, <clears throat> it's, it comes down to getting the goal on the back of the net. And towards the end of the game, Hilaire had that uh, really close call. But besides that – there were two or three, especially some runs by Antonio that we should have put away. The, Antonio had that great run with Hilaire where he um, slotted it behind him. That was a, a complete mistake. I think Antonio was a little bit off his game today, in my personal opinion. However, uh, we were talking earlier, and you made a good point. He still had a positive impact. Yeah, he was didn't have the same control he exhibited in the Southampton game. I know... In the Southampton game, he did miss the one goal where he was kind of on with the keeper, but but he still had good touch, good passes, and and made a difference there. Today, he didn't he didn't have the same control that you mentioned the breakaway with him and Hilaire. I think that was a bad pass from Antonio, but I also believe Hilaire didn't necessarily make the best run. I would have Hilaire should have been in a little better position to to receive that pass based on where the defender was. But yeah, throughout the game, Antonio hustled a lot. He had a lot of strength, a lot of pace, good outlet on the break, but he always seemed to be one pass away, one shot away from actually getting a, a tangible output. Now, let's get your thoughts on Antonio and fouls, because it seems that sometimes he's so big out there that he gets fouls called against him or he doesn't fall down because he's trying so hard when it is actually a foul. Uh, take me through that. Yeah, a lot of people today are really fed up with the flopping that's permeated throughout professional football. It's it's really gotten to a point where you get a touch, you just fall down, or even you don't get touched, you just you just fall over to get the ball to get a foul when you know you're going to lose the ball. Antonio is not like that. He tries to fight through everything, and it and it works out great for him a lot. He can get by players a, a lot of times where others would give up. But it does. That's it part seemed, of his effort. That's yeah, part it's, of his it's effort. a big part of his effort. And I, I think that he definitely has a good, a good approach to it. But also the referees do sometimes punish him because he's so physically strong that he takes a lot more contact than other players, but he doesn't get the foul calls because he doesn't always go down. And today that was – I thought it was very evident. I thought the officiating – we'll, we'll talk about the VAR call on its own, but the officiating as far as what was called as fouls and what was it. I thought was really off the mark today. Antonio was, was pushed around. I thought Hilaire got 
roughed up on a few aerial duels. And I also think Bowen was a, was a big victim of bad calls. He was, he would back up into a player and the Arsenal player would essentially fall on top of him and no, no foul would be called. I thought it was terrible. Well, there was one where he, the guy was sitting on Bowen's back and no, no foul and Bowen didn't, you know, fight him or have a hand on him or anything. So that kind of shocked me. I did see a lot of inconsistency in terms of on, on both sides, not just uh, for West Ham or for Arsenal, you know, in terms of when people got fouls called against them or when the ref just let play go. I, I yeah, I don't believe it was the greatest officiated game, but yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think it changed. I don't think it changed the score line as far as right. when the fouls were called or not. It just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. As, I imagine for them, it's very frustrating when there's not a consistent rule, when you feel like sometimes you get fouled very roughly, lose the ball, but no fouls called. And then times where you're defending and you think you get the ball cleanly or there's minimal contact and there's a foul called. So it was really, it was just not a great game by the, by the refs. Um, but I don't think that necessarily was the reason for the outcome as far as what fouls were called and what wasn't. Uh, so we discussed Hilaire a little bit earlier. And from what I saw today, you know, he didn't really get the service. So I can't say that he was great today, but I also want to say he didn't have as much service as he did in Southampton. It, to uh, as playing devil's advocate, though, uh, to that point, you as a player on the field, you've got to have that impact. And we're, when we play these sides like Arsenal, who's a little bit more skilled, in my opinion, compared to like a Southampton or, you know, some of the, the um, like Watford, he's to, to a certain degree, it's on him to kind of create those opportunities and things. I think when we played on the counterattack, he, he played very similarly to how we played Southampton last week, where he was up top trying to win aerial duels, get flick, flick ons to Antonio that was similar. And I think that was good. I think what he didn't do this week that he did last week is when we had, when we didn't necessarily have a break, but we had possession, a more, more slower developed possession. He didn't drop into to the midfield to receive the ball to make, to make other passes. He kind of just stood, stayed up at the top as a target man the entire time. And I'd like to see with his skill, we talked about his skill last week, flicking the ball onto other people, controlling the ball, especially at his size. I think when we have a slower buildup, like we've tried to break, we don't break, so we have to, to move the ball up the field a little more just consistently. He needs to drop into the play a little more, get involved in the passes, and not just sit up at the top waiting for a, a, you know, a lob up to him. So Yeah, sometimes he sits in the 18-yard box and um, even the 6-yard box sometimes on corners and – you know, I don't know. I just don't see a lot of creativity. Usually I'm looking for Ogbonna to, to get to the header and stuff, whereas Hilaire should really be our, our point man and our guy. Um, now, on the corners, we had Noble taking some of the corners. He got one over the top, which it did look like it was a close shot. And, you know, I was willing to kind of forgive that one. But after three or four uh, terrible corners, really, why was Noble taking those? Yeah, so usually we have uh, – Cresswell took all the ones from – the left-footed side, but from the right-footed side, it seemed like uh, Moyes preferred Noble to take those, which which I don't disagree with having a right-footed player take them from there. But I would have thought for nows, out of all the players we had on the field, for nows would have been the best option. 
and he's taken them in the past. He has taken them in the past. Well, a lot of times we see when Anderson plays, he'll take them, or even when Lanzini plays, he'll take them. Noble, Noble's great as far as like from the penalty spot. He's he's great there, but I don't think he has the full skill on the ball to be our our corner taker. And I also don't. It's that's not the best position for him because if we do get caught on the break. The, the corner position's the furthest away from getting back, and with his slow pace, if he gives up the ball easily, he's not going to be able to get back in position to stop a break, whereas a, a slightly faster player might be able to contribute in that sense. Yeah, I, I see your point there. Um, another thing was his play on the field. Again, didn't see it impact the game. However, with Suchet being hurt, I understand why we put him in, I guess. I don't want to say that I wouldn't have put someone else in there. I did like some of the subs towards the end. I just don't think they were made at the right time. Um, I, think but, they, I think they were definitely made too late. Yeah, but I, with Suchek and Noble, you know that even though Suchek was uh, on the bench, coming back from injury, I don't think you can play him all ninety minutes. I much rather him, you know, get subbed in like he did uh, for Noble at what, seventy. I think it was the seventy seventy fifth minute. Mm-hmm. I think Suchek could have come, should have come on ten minutes before he did, and if we were going to make a change on the attacking end, but so I, I thought the Suchek change was good. I thought it should have happened earlier. But throwing on the other two subs we did right at the end—that's too late to make an impact. Those players are cold; they're not in the game. They don't have any time to to incorporate into the game, and so those those are pretty useless subs. I feel like he should have accelerated. Moy should have accelerated when he made the subs, especially. I think when he we should have down. accelerated, and Bowen was arguably one of our better players out there today. He had great effort again. He had some good chances. You know, he took that one long shot, which some people are saying, "Oh, he should have passed it." But that's all in retrospect. When you're in that moment, you're on a breakaway. I, you know, I kind of, I fully support him taking a shot mm-hmm. at the keeper. And when he got it, he got it past the. Are you talking? Are you referencing the one that happened within the first couple minutes of the game? Mm-hmm. The yeah, def- that, he got it past the defense, yeah. Yeah, he got it past the defense, and it I, it clanged off the outside of the post and a couple inches to the left, and we might have gone up one, one nil early on. I think the result this week was not what it was last week. But if you look at the statistics, let me read off. We had only 31% position, percent possession compared to Arsenal 69 but what's important, and I'm, I'm not, and I'm not as worried about the possession, is because we had 14 shots on target. Sorry, 14 shots on t- total compared to Arsenal's nine, and six shots on goal compared to Arsenal's two. We have a very, when we attack in this formation with these players, we are very aggressive with possession, and we do a good job of converting possession into chances. And what, when we are back defending in this formation. We have a very good shape, and we really didn't allow Arsenal to get too many opportunities. They had one header kind of off of a deflection that could have gone in that went over the crossbar. They had one shot that one of our defenders blocked before it got to Fabianski. But besides that, and then obviously the one goal where Ozil got past our defense and headed it over to Lacazette, they really didn't have any good opportunities. And so this is – even though the outcome is different than Southampton, we had we, – we should play this way going forward, I believe. 
I, I completely think we should. And I referenced that when uh, saying the finishing was kind of the problem. You know, we did have six, uh, like you were mentioning, uh, six, I think, decent opportunities. And then um, you said nine shots on goal. So out of, you know, out of those nine, maybe three of them, uh, okay. But um, but definitely six of them were, were good chances. Mm -hmm. Fornals, again, took another uh, long shot too, just like Bowen. And, hey, test the keeper sometimes. Uh, one thing I saw, which was kind of interesting is um, when we would as defense it was kind of uh, it wasn't as solid as it was and we do make quality attacks but if you're you know letting them slot in behind they only had a few shots on goal but uh, compared to us I guess but um, I felt our defense was a bit more vulnerable and I'm not really sure why maybe if we put Suchek in there that would kind of fix that problem I, I saw more holes in the defense though see I, I believe Suchek if you put Suchek in this in lineup instead of Noble, that swings at least 5% possession towards our way. And that, that'll help us a lot, even though I don't think possession necessarily is by itself is great. I think we do what we do. We do well with the possession we have, and it's definitely a uh, intentional setup we're playing. We're not playing to have more possession. We're, we're playing to create better chances, and we are doing that. We might have been slightly more vulnerable at times, but Arsenal has very skillful players and very fast players. Aubameyang, Pepe, these are players that can score goals and use their pace to break down the defense to find goals for others. And we are this back four seems to be playing a little more narrow than what we've had in the past. And the fullbacks, yeah, the fullbacks don't get out and attack as much when we do this, but it it has in my opinion, given us more solidity in the back than what we've had before. And I don't really know if – I might disagree with you. I don't feel like we gave up more opportunities or should have – you know, or gave up better chances than we did against Southampton. I thought they were fairly lucky to get that goal. I mean, they, they only had nine shots, only two on target. We had three times as many shots on target as they did. And – I don't know who to blame for maybe maybe Diop maybe Agbana for letting that goal in to get to, Cresswell, to allow them Cresswell to get past. Get in, in front of his maybe Cresswell. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can even say Fabianski was close to getting a foot on it, but that's one of those goals that you're just it happens and it sucks. But I thought we played well enough to at least have hoped for a draw, if not a win. You know, I tell you what, in soccer, you are going to get scored against. No team has ever gone where they've never been scored against. So I do see kind of that, you know, it, it does happen. It was an unlucky goal. We, I thought we had a few coverages that were blown. However, uh, overall, you know, it wasn't the worst defended uh, goal that we've ever given up. But um, as a result, the attack needs to, you know, score those goals. We had our chances. I don't think you can necessarily pin this uh, loss on the defense. No, I don't even, think so. I think even was, though I thought it was a little bit more vulnerable. It was definitely our lack of clinical finishing that did us in today. I mean, Antonio's header off of the Hilaire flick was as good as Lacazette's chance yep. that he did put in the net. Yep. And we had more chances. Bowen's, you know, just a couple inches off from being on the inside of the post instead of the outside. Bowen tested the keeper a little bit. That network for now has tested the keeper a little bit, but he was able to to catch them both. But 
I mean, their keeper also made some good saves and we also didn't put the ball away and sometimes that we needed to. So I'd say we created the chances today. We generally limited Arsenal's ability to create chances. We just didn't do the best with what we got. And that's going to lose you games. Yeah, it definitely will. I I like the side we're going out with. I like the 4-4-2. Uh, Suchek's coming back from injury is, is big for us, but that's really the only change I would make. And, you know, like you said, we had some subs come on later. I would have liked to see them. Uh, maybe the improvement next game Moyes can make is uh, put on the subs earlier in the game so they can actually have an impact. But I, I wasn't upset with who he took off or who he put on. You know, I, I like the players he took off, but I'm excited to try new things sometimes when things are not necessarily going our way. Uh, now, let's move on to the VAR decision. I, I think both of us and the world can see that it was, by the letter of the law, a correct decision. However, it's <laughs> it was called on the field as a no goal. It was called offsides by the assistant referee. And I believe, and I, I firmly believe that the VAR is taking away the job of the assistant referee because I believe it was a, a, a woman this um, time that called it and she called it offsides because she thought it was offsides and then VAR just completely overruled her. Not to say that, you know, it didn't, it wasn't a fair call, but it was close. Yeah. So she, I do agree. VAR based on the rules, Ozo was not offside. It was very close, but he was not offside. And so, yes, that was a not offside, should have been a goal. The problem I have with just in general, the way VAR has been applied is that there is no, there's no buffer. There's no human element that, so what one thing, and for those of you aren't, that aren't familiar, I'm sorry, we'll tr- I'll try and make this as clear as possible. So in American football, you can have reviews, but for the, for the call on the field to be overturned, you have to have clear and obvious evidence, and it has to be, it has to be a clear error by the official. So if, you know, if it was a 50-50 call at the time, and like, if if the linesman would have made a clear mistake, like, oh my gosh, I don't know how you missed it. It gets overturned. But if what the, what the linesman would have made in America, and this is applying the American football rules, if it seemed to be a relatively correct decision and, you know, the eye can't see, you know, one centimeter difference at, you know, 20 meters away like she was, then it stays what it's like on the field. It keeps that human element. And the way that the VAR has been applied, where they literally have to go in with a computer and draw these, you know, millimeter accurate lines across the field. And it's based on, you know, if the the arm is extended a versus a finger versus, you know, your knee versus your foot. It's what it, it's there's no consistency. And I would like to well, there is it's almost like the consistency is to a mechanical level where there's no, there's nothing graceful about it. There's no, no part of a a fluid game about it. And what I'd like to see is incorporate a little more common sense rules. Well, the fluid game, I think is what it comes down to, you know, we saw that VAR check take at least three minutes, probably even five minutes. 
and they measured it once and you could tell he was on side. So first of all, that takes way too long. And I know they want to get it right, but it's like, come on, if it's that close, I, you know, it's taking away, first of all, Arsenal's ability to cheer for the goal uh, because it takes so long. So they need to fix that. Another thing they need to fix, <clears throat> like I was mentioning, it takes away the assistant referee's job right now with VAR the way it is. She's there just to call the big offsides calls, which the center ref can see anyway. So why pay two extra referees if we don't need them? And I think they are important to the game, but with VAR, you just, oh, you have a foul? Let's go review it real quick. Okay, yeah, you know, there's no point for them. And I think there needs to be because that helps add to the human element of the game instead of just one referee making all the decisions. Um, the third point I'd have about VAR is like, <clears throat> you know, we said on the podcast and as the world saw, it was a fair call. Uh, but is that really adding to the game in terms of if you have a finger over the line or if you have, you know, just a little bit of uh, your toe or something over the line and that's either causing you to go offside or onside, did that really make a difference? And it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily in this call, but I'm just saying in, in other calls, I, you know, I, I could see that I think the rule needs to be changed to where if the offsides gave you an advantage. What do you think? And I, I agree the mechanicalness of which they apply it wouldn't be as bad if it was truly consistent game to game. But as we've seen throughout this Premier League season, strange times where goals have been disallowed that really they should have been just inconsistent application of these mechanical rules. And even like, even if it gets it right, I, I go back to, to Declan's, handball against Sheffield Sheffield yeah. United where he had the great the great run this this Sheffield United player headed it into his arm that was fairly high up his arm it wasn't you know from inch, from really like a foot away he goes on dribbles continues on a great dribble hits the ball to Snodgrass Snodgrass knocks it in and that no, was game no one no one claiming no one claiming for a handball nope. would have won us a point and then and they called go, on the field. Called, called on, the field, on the field. Good. None of the Sheffield players even thought yep. of it as a, you know a handball earlier. And based on these weird letter of the law instead of spirit of the game rules, it were a goal's taken away from us. And you yeah, so you can say mechanically that was a correctly called ball. But how far back do we need to go in the play? Do we need to go from when the keeper made the save on the other end, or do you know what? It's there's not a clear communication of the fans, and I think that's what you see a big uh, a big uproar from a lot of Premier League fans. And I just want to take away so the, the VA, one of the big big arguments was that VAR was going to level the decision and take the bias out of it. So okay. the big clubs wouldn't basically wouldn't get. They're they're getting calls in the old system. They won't be getting these biased calls under the VAR system. Right. I that really hasn't felt to be true. And big surprise, West Ham are the biggest losers from the implementation of VAR. So there's there's been this. You might have seen it going around uh, the a picture of the VAR table, basically based on the goals that have been disallowed or the goals that have been given. That VAR, if that VAR hadn't been in place, what would the, the standings be? And West Ham, if VAR had not been 
basically been implemented and we'd been under the rules of last year, West Ham, this is before this game, by the way, would have had six more points and been 13th in the table. Which means now we would have had, it would have been, what, a tie? So that's Thir- seven more points. Yeah, and, and we would have had a seventh more point. So just based on before this week, we would have been seven points clear of relegation. Jeez. Seven that's, points clear of relegation. That's a major instead of Instead of tied on goal differential. And I want and, to make the point, too, that that is called on the field, too. It's it's not just, you know, the ref calls it off or doesn't call it off sides or something. And then, it, you know, it's and then the VAR agrees with the ref. The VAR is reversing that decision. Is that correct for that table? Yeah, it's it's so that that table was based on all the goals that have been disallowed by VAR. If they would have count, then you you treat them as counting. And the goals that have been given were originally like if if the offsides flag went up on the field, but then later ruled to be a goal like we saw today, Mm -hmm. those goals wouldn't have counted. So like, for example, today under this, those, the rules of those, that table, it would have been a zero, zero draw. Jeez. Isn't that just West Ham's luck? I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's so frustrating as a West Ham fan. Uh, Yeah. uh, Well, uh, do you have anything else on the VAR? I think uh, given the man in the match. Um, I mean, at, at, this, at this point, I think we, this is the last thing I'd say, we really just got to live with it this season. Hopefully the VAR refs get a little better in the implementation. Hopefully the Premier League and the FA get a little clearer and a little more common sense in the rules. And going forward, I just hope, it either they change it to where it adds it actually adds to the game or they take it away. I still don't think it's a lost cause, but I think it does need to have changes to to be a, a net positive. I, I, yeah, I agree. It, the first year I understand a little bit, but I mean at this point it's incredible, and we still have games left to go. You know, and yeah. West Ham for sure, among other clubs, I know Chelsea, uh, Chelsea as well, are suffering in the point table because of uh, the implementation of VAR. Um, so moving on to man of the match, my man of the match today was Declan Rice. Uh, Bowen was a, a decent contender for it. I saw a lot of effort from Bowen. However, I did not see really any major mistakes from Declan Rice. He, when he would go against an attacker, uh, with the attacker with the ball, I trusted that he would get it. And darn if he didn't get it, made some great uh, saves for us on the defense. And there were a few times where the center backs, you know, had to go defend, uh, say Crushel was out of position or something. And then uh, Rice was right there covering him. So Rice, uh, he also was, was very involved in the attack. And I think without him, you have a different game. Yeah, Declan was the man of the match for me as well. I thought he broke up play excellently. I thought he really served as a nice pivot where he would, he'd receive the ball, be able to, to make the right pass, be in the right position when he didn't have the ball to release the pressure from his teammates. And he was the biggest contributor today. I, you know, last week we talked about the great attackers and how they, they really were the reason we won against Southampton this week. I think they came up a little short, but I thought Declan played excellently. That concludes our in-depth, concise analysis of the Arsenal game. And next we'll look at the positional analysis this week as defensive midfield and how that works into the West Ham system.
Welcome back to Green Eggs and West Ham. In this section, we're going to give an in-depth look at the central midfielders in the club. And just a little heads up, this week we're going to talk about kind of the more defensive and the more central midfielders at the club, the Rices, the Sucheks, the Nobles. Uh, in, the, in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about the more attacking midfielders like the Lanzinians and the Fornals. But in this place, we're mostly talking about players that will play kind of that, that spot right in front of the defense or maybe just more box-to-box. Chris, what do you think we need in a central midfielder? Well, it's interesting. You can do a few different things with uh, more of a defensively-minded player. One of them is you can play one guy that just sits back there, is a solid rock the entire time, doesn't let anything through. However, uh, you with that kind of player, you kind of suffer a little bit more in the attack just because he is focused solely on defense. Uh, so we've got kind of Noble in that role. Noble does come up, but uh, for our team, the, I think the best person to assign to purely defensive um, midfielder is Noble. Rice uh, Rice plays kind of in that you know stopper defensive midfield position. However, we see him more um, join in the attack, and that is the second classification I'd put for a defensive midfielder is someone that kind of plays both. Suchek also fits into this role where – uh, you definitely are supporting the defense, and that's your primary job. However, right under your primary job is the secondary job of supporting the attack, you know, catching the trash mm-hmm. that uh, comes out from the attack and, and putting it right back in the box. Yeah, so let's let's talk about Noble first. We, we've talked about him a little bit more in depth last week, so we won't spend too much time on him. He definitely has been more relegated to the to the purely defensive side, I feel like, just based on his lack of legs. He can't get up the field as easily. Still makes good passes. Today he had a great pass to kind of release Hilaire. Hilaire just didn't quite gather it and, and couldn't get it past the keeper. But he, he'll have that moment of brilliance every once in a while. But he's not going to really dribble by players. He's mostly there to put in a good shift, try and break up play through a tackle and – maybe make a pass every once in a while, but beyond that, he doesn't really offer anything spectacular. Yeah. Noble had his, definitely had his time in the club. Uh, and we have covered it pretty much in depth about, you know, now the difference is though, do we go seek a defensive midfielder that plays like Noble where you are, you know, when you think of that player, it is completely the word defense and there's not really too much of an attack in there. Or do you look at players like Suchek where they definitely are joining in the attack? They're going up for the headers. Um, you know, they play defense and that's their primary job. However, there may be times where they're too far in the attack to uh, support the defense. What do you think, Chris? I, I think it's definitely based on your formation and then the other midfielders you play. There are times where you need that one midfielder that's just purely assigned to breaking up the play on defense and not really getting forward to give the the back line the stability. But there's also, if you do that, it could hurt your attack going forward. And that kind of brings us right into Rice, where he can offer that defensive-minded play. But I've been very impressed with his passing development this season. I think in that role, you definitely need a, a solid passer. And both Rice and Suchek fill that, uh, that uh, role. I think Noble has is, is a good passer. I can't say he's not. Um, Though the way the game's going with, you know, kind of focusing more on speed now and uh, and getting up and down the field and 
I think it's and the way the West Ham plays our formation, I think it is just moving a little bit away from being a, a solid defense midfielder and not really supporting the attack to kind of having to fill both roles. Um, now, like you said, moving into to Rice and Suchek, uh I think Suchek is the ideal player. Definitely, obviously, Declan Rice as well. Declan Rice uh, qualifies for the national team, and that's always a good thing to have. Suchek plays on the uh, Czech national team too. So those players are the ones I want to seek. I would really like to get a third, even if we have to develop him just a little bit uh, under Rice and Suchek in the summer transfer window. That that would really be the the ideal pick for me. Yeah, let's go. Let's break down a little bit what Rice and Suchek offers. I think Rice, before this season, I would have just thought, yeah, we pretty much only assign him purely defensive. Don't expect much as far as distributing the ball. Don't expect much going forward. This season, however, he has really extended the range of his passing, getting the ball, the cross cross field lobbed passes, the a little more incisive passes than he has before. And I think when he is able to do that, it really develops what our team can be. It it gives us more of an attacking outlet. I still don't think he's never going to be a player that scores five, six, seven goals a season, but I think he could develop into a player that gets several assists and, and does help facilitate the offense. I, I completely agree, and uh, it's interesting to see how the game has developed because, like you said, in seasons past, Rice was more of definitely that only defense player, not super, you know, supporting the attack. Uh, but but now this season, he's definitely developed in that role. And right as Suchek came in, we've seen him go straight into that role as well, where he's supporting the attack actually a lot more than I thought he would. Yeah, he he definitely at at Prague when he played there, he scored goals. And we haven't really seen the goal scoring from him yet, but he has looked dangerous at times when he's been on. He has, man, he is an engine in the midfield, runs a ton. It's really refreshing to see when you have him and Rice in the midfield, how much ground they're able to cover together. And each of them are solid enough to where they can hold down the fort while the other breaks ahead. Now, another thing I want to mention, which is an important uh, I guess characteristic of the defensive midfield is a leader. Uh, you, you see Noble as our captain out there uh, in the defensive midfield role. And I think it is really important to have a leader type character uh, in that position too. So I, from what I've seen, Rice, uh, both Rice and maybe Suchek, though he's a little bit newer, could fill that role. Um, there are some players I would say, you know, for sure are just, I would not put in that role, but, uh, but I, I do see potential from Rice and Suchek in terms of leadership role. And I think those are also the type of character we need to look for, not just a good player in defensive midfield. We need that character aspect. I agree. I agree. Suchek was actually the captain at his former club. I don't believe we'll see him be that type of leader for us at the moment. I, I'm not sure how good his English is. I think that's a big requirement to be a a captain like player in the premier league you know nobles filled that role wonderfully for us but as noble kind of gets phased out of the the consistent first team rice can definitely be that going forward and i i think even as soon as next year it rice should be the captain for us going forward he offers that the vocal leadership as well as the leadership by example through the effort that he gives yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, man, Rice on the national team is, is fun to watch too. Um, 
Well, that, that's, young, that's a great leadership development opportunity for him as well to at that age to play have at that the added level. pressure of, of playing on the national team and being a relatively consistent starter there too. It's, yeah, playing on the national team opens up, opens up the possibility of him getting injured, not playing for West Ham. But the benefits it gives our team based on his development, I think, are worth it. The benefits are huge. And, uh, you know, if we ever go up to him being able to be transferred or if other clubs are looking at him or something, Declan, to me, has been the man of the match consistently. It's always between him and Antonio from uh, from these past games uh, this season. And he needs to be on big money if he is not already. So I would not be upset if he was our highest paid player. He's definitely earned a big money contract. He about a year ago got his, got his big extension from, you know, kind of the, the semi youth contract he had to, to, you know, a full money, you know, premier league player, but he does gather, garner a lot of interest from big, big teams. And I think he can definitely play in those big teams. I, but we do need to do everything we can to keep him staying up as the first step. Uh, but beyond that, we gotta, we gotta keep him happy. And I think Suchek, we gotta, we gotta stay up to keep him. And I think both of them can be big contributors going forward. I do too. An important point is that Suchek is technically on loan. I think there's uh, big indications from the club that they are going to purchase him at the end of the transfer at the end of the uh, season. However, like you said, if we get relegated, that <laughs> chance that chance goes way down the drain. So. We do need to stay up, but Suchek, I, I believe, will join the club. Um, now, let's move on to – we've got Wilshire and Sanchez. Um, yeah. Wilshire's been hurt. I haven't seen him ever play, and it his injury, I mean, it. you know, he's always injured. So, uh, don't know if that's the greatest transfer we've ever gotten. Sanchez, to me, I hate to use strong words, but I see him as useless. Every time he gets on the field, I get a little bit more nervous. I don't see him ever being the – right option in terms of if we need to play a little bit more defensively let's put on a Sanchez a defensive player to hold the fort down that's that's not what I see out of him what do you think I think for Wilshire he's a great player when he can play but we have a large enough sample size to know he's never going to consistently be able to play Sanchez keep him miles away from my team (laughs) I you and I both listen to the West Ham way. We think it's a great podcast. X has mentioned before that basically we, we, we pretty much tried to get rid of Sanchez and just couldn't find any takers. So I would be happy if we could somehow get out of his contract with it, give him away to another team if they'd even take him or something. I'd like to get him away as for Wilshire. For the money he's on, he's not worth it. He's not hardly ever going to play. Fans are frustrated with him because we see him constantly injured, but still kind of joking around. We don't. We don't. We, he jokes around in some of the the PR videos, and part of that's on the PR team for putting him in that position. But the general West Ham fan is fed up with him, and because we don't we don't see him working hard. He might work behind the scenes, but we don't see it. And we just see him as a drain on the club. So both of them, if we were able to ship them off, get them off our books, I'd do it. Now, one thing you mentioned was Sanchez, you know, we're trying to kind of get him out. And he seems to always stick around. In the January transfer window uh, from the Spanish leagues, there was actually some interest on him. And we were 
kind of close to closing a deal. I don't want to say it was close, but um, it was in the works. And Sanchez came out and said that he wants to earn his spot back on West Ham, the starting West Ham 11. Um, he won't. He won't. He doesn't even make the bench right now. But I, I was, I was, so anyways, that deal was coming in and I got really excited for a few days. And then I saw that he came out and said he wants to earn his way back in West Ham. And I, I tell you, the reason is because he knows he would never get to play at that level again. He would uh, He'd go never down. make the money again. He He'd would never, never make, make the money much. again. Yeah. And Which so, now I want to be very clear as far as for him, for Wilshire, I don't, you know, we can be frustrated with them as players. Maybe they don't work hard enough as they can. But if you were in the position where you're making that much money, more money than you'd be able to make anywhere else, from their perspective, I, I understand why they haven't left. It doesn't make sense for them to leave. And so I can't, I can't fault them on that. It, from their perspective, it is a good yeah. business decision. From the West Ham's perspective, it is the worst I mean, business decision we've ever made. Yeah, it's, it, well, not the worst, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad. Uh, yeah, so I'm just going to pretty much assume neither of them factor into the team going forward. So, so tell me about Colin and Coventry. Yeah, so the two two kind of younger players that, that could contribute to us going in the future. Let's start with Josh Colin. He's currently on loan to to Charlton Athletic, playing a lot for them, actually. Uh, appeared 25 times in the championship. Um, he is getting a little older. He's someone – he's 23 years old. A lot of people thought he'd break into the team at this point. If we stay up next year, I, I'd like to see Moyes or whoever the manager is give him a chance in the preseason to earn his spot. I think he could be a contributor to us. He seems – I don't know too much about him. never really seen him play outside of the, the few appearances he's made for West Ham, like in a cup game. Seems to be a hard worker, a good runner in midfield, but there is some t- questions about the technical ability if he hasn't been able to, to break through the first team in the Premier League. If we do get relegated, I obviously think he's played a good job for Charlton. I think he could be a big contributor for us. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, let me just mention Ngakia is now starting. He's earned his spot every single game for the past three games. And, you know, he played against Liverpool the first two games of his Premier League starting career. So, hey, why not give these players a chance? Uh, they may turn into the next Ngakia. That's true. I, I definitely think he should deserve a chance. But I, the general consensus I can, I've seen from West Ham fans is that at Cullen's age at 23, he's about four years older than, than Ngakia. He's even two years, two and a half years older than Declan Rice. A lot of people think, well, maybe the train's left the station. But I, I think if he at least could be a squad player for us, offer some depth, you know, I'd take him over Sanchez any day. I, I'm not willing to write him off yet. I'd like to see him get one more chance at West Ham. After that, let's move on to Coventry. He just this uh, January went out on loan, had been playing for the youth team, for our youth team before then. Seems to be maybe a little higher potential than Colin, according to people at the club. We still don't know a lot about him. He's still very young at about 19 or 20. But I really don't have too much on him, but that's, that's, he's a name to watch out for in the future. And I would like to see – in the summer, whether the manager's Moyes or whoever else, 
all of our youth players together and, and just give them a chance because you never know when we're going to have a player like Ngakia or even Rice a couple years ago, how he broke up and has become the mainstay of our team. Well, he really has. And we've got Holland too out on loan. I'm kind of watching him now. He is more obviously attacking, but uh, with Coventry specifically, you know, <clears throat> like we mentioned earlier, look, we're looking for a player that has the character. Uh, I don't know Coventry's characters per se, but we're also looking for a young player who we can develop uh, under Rice and Suchek and really get them to the level that he needs to be. Now, if he's on loan, getting some experience elsewhere, I'm okay with that, but I definitely uh, want to look for players like him. I Maybe we look for someone else with a little bit more skill. I don't know, um, but yeah. Yeah, so that's all the players that seem to be on the cusp of, of – getting a, maybe a first-team chance. So we've kind of touched on it briefly throughout the section, but let's go a little deeper into it. What would you do in this next transfer window relating to the defensive and central midfield? I would only get one um, one more defensive midfielder uh, if, if Coventry stays out on loan. We definitely need a replacement for if Rice or Suchek gets hurt. Noble... You know, we've seen kind of uh, him. I don't think he deserves to be in the 11 uh, starting, or the starting 11, but maybe on the bench. If he sticks around for another season, I'd say that's got to be his last season. Um, if this is not his last one already, I could see Noble becoming a good defensive midfield coach. Uh, so, you know, if maybe if Noble sticks around and then you look for other positions, but if Noble doesn't, I definitely believe you need someone that is going to be a solid, consistent uh, player even if you don't start him every single game definitely need to, to bring in someone uh, and besides that I would I would also I would go for a player that is has some speed too and can support both the attack and, and defense and not just be one big defender and not go up at all yeah I agree I think assuming Sanchez and Wilshire they're not going to factor into our team so we really only have established players of Noble, Rice, and Sujak. And even with Noble kind of on the decline, that's not enough. So I'd, I'd, I'd bring Josh Cullen back. I'd have him fight for his possession and fight for his position and hopefully be at least squad depth, if not even fight for a starting spot, if he proves to be good enough. But we do need another player, hopefully a young player that can develop. You know, Suchek seems to be, assuming he can stay healthy, will be a great player to put next to Rice. And so hoping that we have both of those forward, those still there, I'd like to see one more, maybe not a big money signing, but a player that can grow into a first-team player. And that's at least good enough to where we're not going to be scared of starting them. A player good enough that if we know, oh, Rice is injured, we need to start this person, or Suchek's injured, we need to start this person they'll still contribute to the team and hopefully we can get a good result. That being said, they need to be a relatively young player. We don't need to be buying another old slow midfielder. So that kind of gives our, our take on what we think we need at the center midfield position. And uh, you made a good point there. Do not spend big money on defensive midfield. We, we spent for Suchek in January. Uh, we've got rice. Who's a very good player, obviously. So, we definitely need, I think, one more player, as we've concluded, but it does not need to be massive money. We need to spend that money elsewhere on the team. No, and I think you can find a good player like in the championship or in maybe on a, a smaller team in the top five leagues somewhere else. Someone that's hungry, that'll fight, and that has 
you know, the kind of athleticism to play in the modern game. Well, that wraps up our view of the central midfielders at the club. Stay up, stay tuned for our breakdown of the upcoming game against Wolves. back to our third section of green eggs and west ham here we're looking ahead to next week and we've got wolves coming up it's interesting uh, they're actually started in 1877 and they were another church team that started they played the team across the street from them actually and us uh, from there started a club and then they're one of the first uh, first leagues to or first teams to start the football league club which uh, you know eventually develops into english soccer as we know today english football uh, they play at uh, molyneux which is Actually, they've played there since 1889, an insane amount of time. Uh, it's their home stadium, and we actually are hosting them home, so we've already played there this season. But uh, really fascinating, they've played there for over 100 years. Now, looking at over their overall league performance, they've been up and down. Uh, they've been in the Premier League most recently since about the 2017-2018 season. They took a dive in 1986-87 to go down to, all the way to Tier 4, but for the most part, they've either been in the Premier League or Tier 2. And uh, now we've got a manager is uh, Nuno Santo. And Chris, why don't you walk us through what he's done for the club? He's a big part of what they do. He brought them up from the, from the second division into the Premier League and really helped establish them as a strong Premier League side. And one thing he has really established a culture and him being Portuguese, he's brought in a lot of Portuguese players and it seems to have a very nice kind of unifying effect on their team. I mean, they have Rui Patricio, Ruben Neves, Joao Moutinho, among others that, that are solid contributors to their team. And those are players that you wouldn't really expect to be on a premier league team if it wasn't for the Portuguese links. And it's, it's made them a strong team. I think they, they play with a lot of, as a team, very solid. They have a system that they, they commit to, and it makes them a very deadly side. It does. And one word I would use to describe them is vigor. I always see a ton of energy out there on the field. They've got some fast wingers that can run up and down the sides, tearing up the defense. And while they do have uh, some name players, they're not necessarily the most famous in the world. However, like you said, their system works and they tear up defenses. And I'm, I'm concerned about that for our team. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, interesting. They've won three out of our last five games. And in terms of total goals, they've only scored six more than us, but uh, they've received less 15 less goals against, which, uh, which means that they've got a solid defense. Our our attack is going to have to be on point to score against them. Yeah, I really don't think they have any weaknesses. They often play with kind of a five back, pretty solid center backs and really good, really good wing backs that when they when they settle into defense, it's good. Man, Ruben Neves, he's a great player. He's very close in age to Rice and also has had a similar impact to that team that Rice has had to us 
They have he's a real engine in the midfield. But the player I think we really need to worry about is their their front three, specifically Adama Traore. He is fast. He is strong. Doesn't have the most skill, but he's been able to put it put it together a little more this year, and he really seems to hurt us every time he plays us. He definitely does. And another thing I'm uh, mentioning about that attack is um, Raul Jimenez. <laughs> I personally have really never liked the player just because he plays for Mexico against the U.S. men's national team. Yeah, he, um, he, he always eats the U.S. <laughs> men's national team's lunch. He is he's a, he's a very talented striker. He's a killer. and But but that's the point about the Wolves, though, is you look at that. You look at him. You look at Neves. You look at some of their midfielders who – their attack is solid and they really don't make a lot of mistakes. It's kind of how I, almost I look at Liverpool where, you know, where's the chink in their armor? Yeah. He's, I mean, they're definitely not as, as skilled, but they have that same structure where you just, they take the players that they have and they're good players, but they make them into this, this consistent unit that performs better than some of the parts. And it's, it's really interesting how they have, They've come up from the championship and bought some players, but a lot of it's been through just kind of player development and system development that's made them into such a strong side in the Premier League. Now, as we host them at home, how do you beat them? I think we you beat them playing the same way we've played. We play that we played against Southampton, that we played against Arsenal. Obviously, we had the good good game against Liverpool. But then really going into the Southampton game, we changed our formation and our mentality to the 4-4-2, two strong players up top playing a counterattacking style where we give up possession, but we get back and get in our, get in our formation defensively and then use our strong attacking players as good outlets on attack. I think you have to keep that same attitude going forward. Don't play scared. Play aggressive when you have the ball and play – with the intent to win the ball back on defense. I think that's how you have to beat them. I I would agree. Uh, if you look at the past three games, we've got Liverpool, Southampton, and now Arsenal, where we've played strongly, I believe. Uh, we haven't. There's been a few minutes after the uh, break at halftime where we've looked a little bit vulnerable. But besides that, we've had a pretty much uh, pretty good games overall. So come out play strong against them, play for the win for sure. Don't just sit back and think, oh, they've got such a good attack, we'll just fold back. No, you go, you go for those three points, you get those attacks, even if we you know, are losing that 70% possession and we only have 30%, you've seen we're, we're effective with it. We make quality attacks. Uh, and especially with our fighter up there, Antonio, and I think Galair too can, uh, can put some balls on net. So I, yeah, I, I think you go out there and you play them really strong. One thing that I think has changed with our formation is our confidence. We have not been scared of any of the past three teams we faced. No, like, no matter Liverpool's, Liverpool, a team that everyone else would believe we should crush us, even though they've had a couple of struggles recently, a team like Southampton, which we think we should go out and beat, a team like Arsenal that, yeah, they haven't been playing the best this year, but they have so much talent. Mm-hmm. We haven't – one thing that's refreshing is we've played our game. We trust in our players, and the players – Moise has trusted in our players, and the players on the pitch really have not shied away from, from the battle. You know, they yeah, they lost today, but 
it wasn't because we were scared. It was just because we missed some chances. So something I'd like to bring up, maybe a little comparison, thinking about these teams, and I'm just kind of thinking off the cuff here. Let me know if you agree with me, but Arsenal has great players. They've had trouble fitting them into their system recently. And I see the opposite being true for Wolves. They've got decent players, but they're not, you know, they're not these, all these names you recognize. However, they fit them into their system. They've integrated it. And we've talked about how good their system is. So I kind of see them almost as the opposite of Arsenal, uh, just in, in terms of that, where it's not just focusing on individual play. They really are playing as a team with chemistry. I definitely agree with you. They have, they do have very good players, but going down the line, there's very few players you see that you think would break into, you know, a consistent starting spot at another, you know, a top five Europa champions league fighting club, like the way they've produced, you know, maybe Ruben Neves, maybe Joao Matuño or Diego Yoda, but no one that I'd look at and be like, oh, he would start for Man City or he would start for United or or Tottenham or, or Chelsea. But they are players that work well together and they buy into it, they give their effort. And that's, you know, to some extent, that really is what we need as as a team. We're not gonna we have good players. They're they're not they're not all world class, but we have good players on paper but players that aren't likely going to play every week for those top four clubs, except maybe you could say Declan, but otherwise players that are better than players that Southampton have, but aren't as good as players that city has. And the way we get the most out of them would be to, to really just get them to commit to a system and, and do the best in a system that we can have them succeed in. So looking at the the table, we've got, you know, obviously we're towards the the bottom there, a little bit, a lot more towards the top. Um, we talked about coming out strong. However, play for the win, but I am not upset with a draw here. It is a home game. Uh, we've done a little bit better away this season, but the draw would be okay. Taking a point away from them, I think I would still be pretty happy with the result. Obviously, loss is not ideal. Uh, I believe it is attainable to get a draw at least. I, I think the chances are a lot lower to get a win. But looking at today's result, uh, they were a little bit vulnerable today, and they only won by one goal. I agree. I wouldn't be too disappointed with a point, but I, I, we need to go for the win. We need to play for the win. And if we get the win, great. Great job. It'll, it'll go a long way to keeping us up. If we get a draw – they're a good team. You know, you always want to win at home, but a draw against a good team at home, especially when every point we get could mean the difference. I'd take it. If we get a loss, that's going to be very disappointing. You know, today, the, the loss today was disappointing, but I still thought there were positives from our play. So I, if we play the way that we did today and the way we did last week, I hope to get points, if, if probably all three points from this one. I think that's a, a decent analysis too. Um, if you look at, we've got Tottenham coming up and Wolves to me are the two hardest teams for us to come away with points, whether that's one point or three. Uh, so both of those teams, I'm not looking forward to playing. I think we do have the potential to beat them and, and win. I come out with a tie for sure. And, uh, you know, lose, I, I would just say out of those two teams, I think losing is the biggest possibility with, with these two, with our remaining fixtures. I, um, I, w- I hope we get 
a win in one of the two. They're both beatable teams, especially yes. with the way we tend to play Spurs. We, I would be disappointed if we didn't come away with a win from one of these two games. Hopefully, two wins or at least a win and a draw, and that it, two wins should get us almost to safety. But yeah, or you know, get us at least a, a good buffer. But we we need to pick up points. We today we were lucky that even though we didn't didn't win, the teams just below us didn't win either, so we didn't drop down back into the relegation zone. But that's right. Can't we're at bank a point on that every week. We're, we're at know, a point. Twenty-seven in the points is not enough to stay up. Right. You, you've got to play for every single point. And even if we were playing Liverpool in our next two games, look, we don't have time. You know, we're running out of games. We're running out of points that we can take away. So you go out there, you play super tough, but you also have to play for every single point. Uh, there is no, oh, well, we can accept this loss and then uh, we'll get it next time. No, that I think that time's over. Yeah, I- I would say that it, if time's not over, it's at least coming to an end. This game, I can't, I can't criticize the effort that was given, but we need to, we need to work on finishing and training. We need to, to shore up some of those mistakes that we made. And if you keep making those mistakes going forward, you could find yourself playing in the second division next year. So, and that's we. That would be terrible. I know a lot of fans are. Some fans have said that they'd be okay with that. They think it'd be purifying for the club, get us back to that roots. And yeah, like, yeah, it hurt the owners. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of the owners, but I think it hurt West Ham fans a lot more than we're going to, than a lot of us would, would care to admit. And that'd be terrible. Well, we've got some plans actually for future episodes, uh, possibly in the summer where we look at what, you know, some of the financials of the clubs, but also how relegation really impacts teams. Because I think a lot of people don't really understand that. They say, oh, relegation is really bad. We'll get up next season. Relegation is terrible for a team. It destroys their financials, and it's very, very tough to get back in. So I don't want to say it's naive, but it is – it is not it is not just purifying. It is a, it is completely wiping your team and trying almost to start. I mean, it's bad. Yes, I mean Sunderland faced that. They thought they were going to come right up, and they had the double drop. And they're currently kind of toiling in in League One right now. It's their club is a shell of what it was. And even though yeah, there there they have fans that have stuck with them those fans can't be happy at where they they are now as opposed to a few years ago it's it's not fighting against relegation and barely staying up even you know when you're having fights with your owners is a lot better than playing you know against teams in in league 1 i struggle to name hardly any that are that are there it's you're not going to get all, especially for fans, international fans, fans that aren't in London that can't go to the games. Not being in the Premier League's tough. It's going to be, you know, if we we can catch a couple championship games in the U.S., but less than half for sure, and that's less than ideal. Well, and I tell you what, if we if we stay up, say even just by one place, but we stay up we can't look at this season as a successful season by any means, but we can, we can, you know, dust off our shoes and we can say, all right, let's, let's get back out there. Let's fix the problems we had. It was a terrible season, but we stayed yeah. up. If yeah, you get relegated that this season goes down in history. This, this, this season's already a failure. 
but let's not make it a historic failure. Right. And well, let's get into our starting 11. Uh, how would you play against the Wolves? I, I think we should keep the exact same formation. We've talked about it. I think the results, the results have been relatively good. And I think it gets, it gets the best out of the players we have. The only change I would make would be since Suchek is back healthy, putting him instead of Noble in that midfield, that would make a big difference. We'd see even more control in the offense. And I think we'd have more defensive solidity given the, the running range that Suchek has. Yeah. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. How do you go out there and change anybody in this formation? We had decent subs uh, <clears throat> today, obviously with, you know, starting Noble and then now Suchek, I would uh, start Suchek, but now that he's healthy but besides that we had we have snodgrass coming off the bench if we really need to change the attack we've got anderson that can come on if a player gets hurt or if uh, we need to change the attack as well but in terms of the starting 11 i think it's a very tough case to say oh well you know let's put in let's take out bowen and put in snodgrass for instance absolutely not bowen i think has 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 drastically dramatically earned his starting spot and i look at every single player out there and i say you know what they have earned their starting spot over others on the bench, in my opinion. I agree. For me, no one on the bench has, with the exception of Suchek because of his injury, has earned their way into the starting 11. The closest for me would be Snodgrass. He fights, and I, I hope he is one that, you know, Moyes looks at as the first to be subbed on. I think he's earned that, but – you know, Bowen's skill the past couple games has been great. I still think he starts over Snodgrass for me. If we do need to change up the attack, I could see Snodgrass going in for Hilaire. I think Snodgrass could be a great asset. However, I say that just based on today's performance, but there have been games where Hilaire's been very good and he's getting the service. There's been games where he's been impactful. So even right now, that's kind of the only sub I, I may think of doing if I need to change up the attack. But I, I think it's a mistake to pull off Bowen unless, obviously, for injury. Um, yeah, I, the, the biggest problem with, with putting on Snodgrass for Hilaire, I, you know, even if you move Bowen to that striker spot and move Snodgrass where Bowen was, for me, this system really only works because you have two strong players in Antonio and Hilaire up top where Antonio has both the strength and the pace, Hilaire has the strength and the touch to be that outlet, whereas if you put Bowen up there, Antonio can still win you headers, and yeah, Bowen can get behind the defense, but Bowen hasn't – he's not going to be used to his potential as a hold-up player. Let me just play devil's advocate uh, one more time just, you know, like to kind of defend our positions here. So – Anderson, I, I think Lanzini we can both write off as not really produced and he needs to earn his starting spot back on the practice field. And maybe if he comes on for a sub, um, God forbid, but uh, for Anderson specifically, we have seen quality play from him in, in the season. Uh, it's kind of gone up and down, but why is he not starting over say for or Antonio? Yeah. He, he offers some pace. He offers some skill when he's on his game and he, it could be a positive difference. You know, Fernal's had an okay game, nothing great today, but I nothing terrible. He still tried. I think he still – he made some good passes, helped develop the play. For me, 
the biggest reason for not putting on a player like Anderson is even if you think he's would give as much as Fernals, even if you think he would, which he might, he's not going to try as hard as Fernals has. And once you have these players, all 11 have tried hard, but when you, when you reward someone like Anderson for not putting the effort on the pitch, you're going to see kind of a contagion effect towards the other players where, you know, I don't, Let's look at Hilaire. Hilaire has been motivated by City. a player by like Antonio and, and, and Rice and the other players around him. If, but he's, you know, he's not a player that necessarily has tried every game. So you put a player like Anderson, who really the past few games hasn't tried in there, and you're kind of signaling to a player like Hilaire, oh, maybe I don't need to try as much. And so then he starts not playing as hard. And then another player starts not playing as hard. And before long, you have you know, four or five in the side that are not, not doing their defensive assignments and, and we're giving up goals because of it. So the past two games, I think we've seen a different Hilaire compared to how we saw him maybe right, uh, right after Christmas and a little bit more of a laser Hilaire uh, in those games right after, right after the break. So I, I fully believe that motivation was because Hilaire sat and he sat on the bench and he watched his players and he said, you know what? I'm better than this. I can go out and play. Now, Anderson, I, I don't mind giving him some chances. And, and you know, maybe I think practice. as a sub, I think as a sub. Right. Oh, as but a sub for, for sure. Me, for me starting now. No, and, and I, I do agree with you. I'm just kind of here playing devil's advocate. I, you look at Fernals and you see he's got shots on goal, which Anderson sometimes takes shots on goal. Um, but Fernals is out there trying. He's a difference maker and I see Anderson being a difference maker in some games, but not all. Whereas I see for now as a difference maker in all games. Yeah. I, I think Anderson has that pay, <clears throat> excuse me, that pace, that skill on the ball to change a game in an instant, but we haven't seen enough of it to give him the starting spot. I, I hope Moyes gives him a little more of a chance than what he gave him today, you know, subbing him on like at the 90th minute, giving him nothing but he really needs to show in training and when he has the opportunity on the pitch that he will fight for this club. And he hasn't for me. Uh, and the last thing we've got here is the defense. Uh, we've all said, we're going to start, you know, Creswell, Ogbonna, Diop and, and Gakia, the kind of starting four that we've seen the past uh, couple games here. Fredericks right now being out when he comes back full strength. I, I really think Ngakia has earned his spot. I would not take Fredericks and, uh, and replace Ngakia with him. I think Zabalet is too slow and Balbuena is a, a great sub for the center midfield, uh, excuse me, center defenders. But again, Agbana and Diop, they've been pretty lights out. I, I can't pin the loss on, on them today. So I, I think you keep your starting four and I'm pretty happy with the defense right now. I agree. Especially, you know, Cresswell offers that more defensive solidity and without a player like Snodgrass in the team, he's really the, the best dead ball player we have from a free kick or a corner and he, you know, he's earned his spot. The two center backs, man, they've they've been lights out. I wouldn't, you know, we talked about the goal in the first segment. I don't really think the goal today was was purely on them. They maybe could have stopped it, but you know, they also could have been beaten at other times. But they held their ground and broke up the play. So I, I think they they were net positives today. And man, Ngakia, he just continues to impress me with his poise. He had some great seal outs today. He, you know. 
Aubameyang played on that left wing against him, and he's one of the top two or three scorers this season in the Premier League, and he really wasn't a threat. All this, like Ngaki had dealt with him quite well. I I completely agree, and uh, that is a strong starting eleven. We've seen it work in the past uh, past few games against good teams. And I really hope that it works against Wolves. Uh, we've got the, the formation, the consistency, the chemistry starting to come together. So let's see what Suchek can do for the full 90 minutes and let's go out and play hard against Wolves. Well, that concludes our episode of Green Eggs and West Ham. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week to analyze Wolves and look ahead to, to the following game.